good morning and welcome back to Coffee Books. Today we are continuing on at the top of page 73 in The Curious Barista's Guide to Coffee, written by Tristan Stevenson. Let's continue. A word on imperial and metric. I have become increasingly disenchanted with the imperial system over the past years for a number of reasons. Firstly, pints, cups, pounds, and ounces fall very short of the mark when it comes to precision measurement, with some areas of coffee requiring measurements in one one hundred of an ounce. Secondly, the metric system is also vastly superior in its ability to scale measurements by only changing the prefix. 140 grams is equal to 0.14 kilograms, for example, and calculating brew ratios. I recommend acquiring two sets of digital scales. Although it's possible to get by with only one, one for measuring small quantities of coffee grounds, this scale should have increments of 0.01 grams, and one for measuring larger quantities, such as water in a pour-over brew. This scale will get by with one gram increments, but should be capable of measuring up to five kilograms. Scales needn't be expensive. Both sets should cost you no more than 30 pounds or $47, but do read the reviews. Also note that scales need to be serviced from time to time to keep them on the money, so get a set of calibration weights for this. Caffeine. The term caffeine was originally coined by the German chemist F.F. Runge in the mid-19th century. The word itself is conjunction of the German kaffee, coffee, and the chemical suffix ein. The French translated it to caffeine and, in turn, the English caffeine. An alkaloid, a naturally occurring chemical compound, many of which are stimulants, caffeine, is designed to be a natural deterrent against insects. But I suppose the added bonus is that larger animals who readily digest coffee beans and prepare them for germination seem to love the stuff. Almost all plants containing mind-altering alkaloids are grown in the tropics, where the competition for survival is so fierce that the plants have developed increasingly elaborate ways to defend themselves. Caffeine can be found in over 60 other plants besides coffee, including tea, cola nuts, yerba mate, a leaf similar to tea popular in South America, and guarana berries, to name a few. But given the word's etymological origins, it's fair to say that the very definition of caffeine is coffee chemical. And that coffee chemical is now the most widely consumed drug in the world, surpassing that of nicotine and even alcohol. New Scientist magazines state that around 90% of North Americans consume caffeine on daily, approximately 75% of which is coffee. It's mankind's obsession with caffeine's stimulating effect that has led to an increasing number of consumer products containing a synthesized form of the drug, from the obvious sodas and soft drinks through to the new wave of energy drinks, as well as ice cream, gum, and even shaving gel. A 200 milliliter or seven fluid ounce cup of filter coffee can vary wildly in terms of caffeine content, but may typically contain around 120 milligrams or 0.12 grams of caffeine or 600 milligrams per liter. However, it is estimated that 
120,000 tons of caffeine are consumed globally every year, equivalent to up to 800 billion cups of coffee. Caffeine typically accounts for between 1.2 to 2.5% of the dry matter of green coffee and around 0.7% of the dry coffee cherry. The Robusta species has, in the past, been celebrated for its overinflated caffeine content. And this is indeed true, but evidence suggests that other growing factors, variety and processing methods, also have a part to play. Recent studies seem to agree that darker roasts do cause some sublimation of caffeine molecules, which have a boiling point of 170 degrees Celsius, or 350 degrees Fahrenheit, but this is offset by an overall reduction in bean weight and density, so the effect is somewhat negated. Besides, anyone selecting coffee based on caffeine content and its correlation to roast profile would be somewhat missing the point. Since caffeine is highly soluble, the brewing technique, within reason, makes little or no difference to the caffeination of the final beverage. Of course, the brew ratio, ratio of coffee to water, will affect the milligram or liter of caffeine in the final drink, and for this reason it's better to relate caffeine content to the grams of coffee that you are consuming rather than the volume of the drink. The common belief is that caffeine is flavorless, but this is in fact incorrect. Pure caffeine has a very strong bitter flavor and even its most modest presence in coffee is thought to provide around 10% of coffee's bitterness, certainly enough to subtly differentiate the beverage from those absent of caffeine. Our bodies metabolize caffeine readily, and the effects can be felt almost immediately, but it typically reaches peak performance after about 30 minutes. After three hours, the effects are half of what they were at the point of peak performance it can take over 12 hours for the drug to leave your system altogether. But the exact time varies according to lots of other factors. Hydration, food, exercise, smoking, alcohol, race, age, and even gender. In the world of caffeine, the science and culture of the world's most popular drug, authors Bennett Allen Weinberg and Bonnie K. Beeler Muse that a non-smoking Japanese man drinking his coffee with an alcoholic beverage would likely feel caffeinated about five times longer than an English woman who smoked cigarettes but did not drink or use oral contraceptives. The psychological and physiological influence that caffeine has on the brain and sympathetic nervous system is of such an acute precision that it almost seems a shame not to regularly exercise it. Caffeine first disarms the natural mechanisms that cause us to feel drowsy, and then takes command, firing neurons that stimulate the pituitary gland, raising our heart rate and causing a sudden release of blood sugars and adrenaline. It achieves this by being chemically similar to the molecule adenosine, which tricks neurons, nerve cells, in the brain. Adenosine appears in higher concentrations when we have expended lots of energy and it clings to neurons like expanding foam, causing the slowdown of brain functions and the feeling of tiredness. Caffeine behaves like an evil twin, however, fooling the neurons and latching on in place of adenosine. 
This anomaly is known as competitive inhibition because the caffeine is inhibiting the effects of adenosine by competing with it for places on the neuron's adenosine receptors. With the imposter in place, one might think that the neuron would behave normally, but the kicker is that caffeine has the opposite effect of adenosine and actually provokes the neuron into firing faster than usual. The pituitary gland, the pea-sized gland at the base of the brain, becomes aware of this and stimulates the sympathetic nervous system into fight or flight mode, an emergency protocol that dilates the pupils, increases heart rate, and releases sugar stored in the kidneys. This two-pronged attack mechanism makes caffeine a highly effective stimulant. Since as far back as the 1800s, the negative effects of caffeine in coffee have been cited by coffee's opponents, such as Charlie Post, the inventor of the caffeine-free, healthy coffee alternative known as Postum, also known as America's favorite coffee substitute. Like most drugs, caffeine use and abuse is open to potential side effects along with the danger of withdrawal symptoms. Those of us who have developed a tolerance to caffeine have actually developed additional adenosine receptors. Our body's way of giving the drowsy molecule a better chance of slowing us down when we deserve a rest. No problem if you've plenty of coffee on tap, but it can spell bad news for caffeine junkies unable to get a fix, since the adenosine will have a greater number of receptors to bind to and the feeling of tiredness can be amplified. In other words, you feel withdrawal. Very heavy caffeine consumers may even experience mood swings when deprived of caffeine, since the drug is linked to the production of serotonin, which regulates such things as mood, appetite, and sleep. Clinical trials have failed to find lasting negative effects from overconsumption of caffeine, however, but a great deal of new research seems to indicate that caffeine might be a powerful positive force in the fight against various mental illnesses. It has for some years been suggested and subsequently proven that caffeine slows the memory decline in old age, but more recent studies have found that moderate caffeine intake in mice prevents brain cell deposits of a protein that is a specific hallmark of Alzheimer's. Trials also indicate that caffeine may be a powerful preventative and therapeutic drug in the fight against Parkinson's disease. Thank you for listening. We'll leave off here today and continue again next morning. Until then, good day and good coffee, friends.